Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Good evening, dear guests, dear students, dear colleagues. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this event on behalf of the Hertie School of Governance. My name is Inisha Godas. I am Professor of International and Cybersecurity. I actually joined the Hertie School at the beginning of this month. So I am um, very excited to be chairing my first event here tonight. This event is part of the Hertie's Digital Week, an intensive six-day program that aims to unpack digitalization and its societal impacts through a variety of different scientific approaches and viewpoints. I'm very excited to be chairing this public event as we aim to shed light on the characteristics, challenges, and potential solutions for dealing with disinformation in the upcoming European parliamentary elections. I'm extremely honored to be joined by three experts on digital disinformation tonight, who will help us cut through complexities of this topic in order to understand what exactly we should be worried about, and what national and supranational responses to potential attacks on European electoral process may actually be fruitful. When I started researching the effects of digitalization on contentious processes about a decade ago, policymakers, journalists, academics were celebrating the internet and social media in particular as a tool that would finally liberate um, people all across the world from tyranny. It seemed as if we'd finally found a way to help suppressed and uh, marginalized people mobilize against repressive rulers. Uh, and back in 2009, I actually remember reading an op-ed by a former US national security advisor who said that Twitter should be considered for a Nobel Peace Prize. So we fast forward 10 years and things actually look very different. Things have really changed. So I think since the 2016 US presidential elections, since the Brexit referendum, and closer to the research I do since the ethnic cleansing campaigns in Myanmar, the world seems to really have woken up to the fact that the same technology that has aided pro-democracy activists across the world is now being used to sow discord, delegitimize democratic institutions, and spread lies and rumors across the same channels. And so at the end of 2018, last year, the European Union launched a war against disinformation in an attempt to protect the upcoming European parliamentary elections from exactly these um, dynamics. So the pro proposed mechanisms the European Parliament suggested included a rapid alert system to support member states in identifying disinformation campaigns, a massively increased budget to help detect disinformation, and put pressure on tech companies to get on board with weeding out the so-called fake news. But we don't really know if these measures work or not. And we don't actually know how concerned we need to be about disinformation in Europe at this point and what we can do at this point about it. And so I'm very delighted to introduce our three experts to discuss these issues with me tonight. Matthias Spielkamp is the founder and executive director of Algorithm Watch, a nonprofit research and advocacy organization that focuses on the effects of algorithmic decision-making processes on human behavior. He's also the co-founder co and publisher of the online magazine iWritesInfo, He's testified before several committees of the German Bundestag on important topics related to AI and robotics. And he serves on the board of many influential organizations, such as the German section of Reporters Without Borders. Very excited to have Matthias here tonight. 
Dr. Rebecca Trumbull is Assistant Professor at the Institute of Political Science at Leiden University. Her research focuses on online political discourse and its effects on political attitudes and behaviors. She co-leads the Misinformed Citizen Project, which is partly funded by the Ellen Turing Foundation in London. And together with a team of researchers, Rebecca has partnered with Twitter to examine echo chambers and uncivil discourse on social media. Welcome, Rebecca. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome our very own Paul Jasper Dietrich, who is policy fellow at the Hertie School of Governance Jacques Delors Institute here in Berlin. He works in the area of digital Europe, where he focuses on European digital policy and structural changes to politics in the EU due to social media. Paul has also written extensively on the need for data and social media regulation in the context of European politics. We'll start with a short statement by each speaker, uh, and then we'll have a short discussion, and then we'll open up to the questions by the public. So thank you very much for being here, and Matthias, I give the floor to you. Thank you very much, Anita, for the uh, kind introduction and also for the opening remarks. And uh, I'd like to start, and I'll make it quick because we need to get into a discussion here. But if you're looking for any conclusive answers, it's time to reconsider your evening plans right now <laughs> and uh, either adjust your expectations or leave. Um, please stay. You know, I, I, think, I think we have a lot to discuss and a lot to talk about. But as Anita already hinted to, um, there are quite some difficult aspects we are facing and uh, not many clear answers that we can offer. Still, um, you touched on this idea that the internet itself is a force for good and then it turned and all of a sudden it's just that force of evil. And of course, I hope we all know that neither is true. And I, uh, in many discussions, hopefully people haven't heard me say that already because I use this often. Um, I'm reminded of the first law of information by Melvin Kranzberg, who said that technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral, right? Because it's easy to say, oh yeah, dual use. We have something that we can use for good or we can use it for bad, and that's a problem, but the technology itself is, of course, neutral. It depends on how you use it. No, it is not. That is not true. Technology is not neutral. Technology has its own dynamics. It produces its own dynamics, but it never does so on its own. It always does that in a societal um, context that we are faced with. So we are influencing the way technology is used, technology is developed, then technology again influences the way we live, work, communicate. And um, when I hear something like the idea of a war on disinformation, I find that uh, disconcerting, to be honest, because this phrase of fighting a war against something like the war on terror or the war on drugs is not the way that I approach these things and I think it's misguided because we do have a challenge here. We have a challenge, I'm certain about that. We have to define a little better what that challenge actually is to be able to, um, to stand up to it. Um, but if we start with these kinds of metaphors, I think we are walking or moving in the wrong direction. Now, uh, this was said by the European Union 
um, by the Commission, if I remember correctly. Uh, at the same time, the Commission convened an expert group, a high-level expert group on fake news and disinformation. I also think that it's a bad idea to have fake news even in the title, and we'll probably talk about that a little later as well. Um, but what I do think is that they have a fantastic set of recommendations. They were able, after all this deliberation, to um, agree on five different recommendations, and I'll read them to you because I suppose that not everyone, only because you're here, are familiar with those rec recommendations. The first one is enhance transparency of online news involving an adequate and privacy-compliant sharing of data about the systems that enable their circulation online. Second, promote media and information literacy to counter disinformation and help users navigate the digital media environment. Third, develop tools for empowering users and journalists to tackle disinformation and foster a positive engagement with fast-evolving information technologies. Four, safeguard the diversity and sustainability of the European news media ecosystem. And five, promote continued research on the impact of disinformation in Europe to evaluate the measures taken by different actors and constantly adjust the necessary responses. Now, it's rare that I agree with the recommendations of a high-level expert group that was convened on a European level. We just had recommendations or at least draft ethics guidelines from a high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, and there was a lot to, uh, to disagree with. Here I'd say, wonderful, those are fantastic recommendations. But we could talk about each one of them for the rest of the evening to find out what it actually means and how we can make them work. And I think we will spend some time on discussing these recommendations and how this could work. Um, but what I'd like to say is we are facing a situation that is very complex. Everyone is aware of that. But only if you start digging into it and look at the different factors, you realize how complex it actually is. And the discourse that we have right now, and um, therefore I'm, I'm also very happy about the title of this discussion tonight, Getting Your Facts Straight, also applies to ourselves. We need in this kind of discussion and in, in, these kind, uh, in this kind of heated uh, public debate, we need to uh, take a step back and get our facts straight before we start to make um, overblown demands on policymakers, on legal regulation. But even, and I say that um, uh, in, in a way realizing that it will be challenged, it should be challenged, and we have to discuss this later on, even though overblown demands on the companies who are facilitating some of that newly created digital ecosystem, meaning the platforms, the information intermediaries. So that's all that I have to say right now, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. So thank you all for coming this evening, um, and I'm glad that um, I'm able to follow up on Matthias's remarks. I'm particularly glad that he um, read to you the five points from the high-level expert group. Um, my main message uh, in opening for you tonight, and I think probably throughout the discussion, is essentially going to be that I'm incredibly skeptical uh, about 
our ability, whether it's policymakers, platforms, the public, journalists, um, or whomever, at this point to actually tackle the supposed problem of disinformation, primarily because we know far too little about the actual phenomenon itself. And because a lot of the approaches that are being taken right now, and even some of the basic recommendations that Matthias read to you, aren't really rooted in a fundamental understanding from a knowledge-based, scholarly, social scientific, humanistic perspective on these problems. Um, I'll give you two quick examples in my opening remarks to illustrate this. Um, and they're intended to be slightly provocative, um, but we can talk about this in, in much greater depth um, throughout the evening. So, the, um, throughout all of this discussion, I think that it's been pretty easy um, for us to make um, whipping boys out of the tech companies, out of the platforms. I'm going to start off by doing that same thing. <laughs> but then I will move on to um, my equal opportunity critiques. Um, so first, I think that um, the tech platforms felt incredible. I mean, truly tremendous pressure um, immediately following the uh, US presidential elections of 2016 to do something, to do anything, to look like they were trying somehow in any way possible and as publicly as possible to um, fix the problem. But in that moment, and I think still now, more than two years later, the tech, neither the tech companies nor anyone else has a really good handle on what the problem is or without having an idea of what the problem is, how to tackle it. And so what a lot of the platforms have done, right, and this is not true in equal measure for each one of the major platforms, um, but to some degree, the major platforms have taken what I'll call a hacker approach to this problem. And what I mean by that is essentially they've tried to just throw one thing after another, or not even one thing after another, but truly all at the same time, right? Let's just try everything, oh, excuse me, let's try everything and see what sticks. That, I think, is a fundamentally irresponsible approach when we're talking about a social problem of this potential magnitude. Um, and it's had, it can have, and it already has had um, some fairly significant consequences. So again, when I'm talking about, you know, the stereotypical whipping boy, I'm going to start off with an example from Facebook, because in some ways it's easiest for um, everyone to get a handle on. It's not that I actually think that Facebook in and of itself has the largest problem overall. Um, but immediately um, in trying to respond to the, the, the problems that were being identified in the wake of the, the US presidential election in 2016, um, Facebook's, one of Facebook's first major, at least public facing um, projects was to implement a flagging system for disputed posts. So posts that users had flagged as potentially problematic had then been sent to fact checkers, and fact checkers said, indeed, there's reason to doubt this, so we put a huge red flag on this. Right? As soon as this was announced, there were social scientists the world over who said, stop what you're doing. This is going to have a major backfire effect. We know from lots 
of research, right, in cognitive psychology, social psychology, political psychology, that people are actually probably going to be more likely to engage with material that you put a big red flag on. Now, luckily, Twitter did research as they were implementing this and found a year later they were able to conclude that indeed the sorts of predictions of these backfire effects came true, they had the data to demonstrate it, and they got rid of the flagging system. Great. But this kind of public demand for just do something, anything now, right, put Facebook in a place where they felt this pressure, they had to make this change, and they did so in a relatively, what I think at least was an irresponsible way. Um, another solution that is really frequently favored by um, policymakers in particular, but the public, journalists, um, even academics, is to suggest that we need to, and in fact, this is reflected in the, um, the in actually a couple of the, f of the five recommendations from the high-level expert group, um, is that we need to counter disinformation by simply getting better, more high-quality information in front of the public. The problem with that solution, it seems relatively intuitive, simple, straightforward, and uncontroversial, but the problem with that solution, or proposed solution, is that, again, we know from truly decades upon decades of research um, across the social sciences that people actually don't want to engage with quality information very much. Even when it's readily accessible to them, um, the vast majority of the public, now very few in this room will, follow in, will fall in this category, but very few people in this room are actually like right, the mass public that we're concerned about when we talk about the effects of mis- and disinformation. I don't say that from an elitist perspective at all, right? This is simply what we know about who are active information seekers, right, versus who um, consume information passively. The vast majority of people are passive receive information passively, and when supposedly high-quality information is put in front of them, they actually actively avoid that information. Now, even for those of us who actively seek information, right, and I'm a political scientist, a political communication scholar, I'm probably one of the most active information seekers on the planet, even I use cognitive heuristics, cognitive shortcuts to process information in ways that means it makes it much more complicated to correct misinformation or for me to even process, right, high-quality information. So these are just a couple examples of why I think the kind of rush to do something now and as quickly as possible um, is much more problematic um, than we often recognize. So I'll leave it with that. Thank you. Yes, um, thank you. Thank you, Anita, for um, the openings, uh, for your statements. And um, let me conclude this round of opening statements by um, maybe a little uh, short, uh, concrete um, outlook on what we might expect in the next weeks um, in terms of disinformation in the European elections. I'd like to also share with you a couple of reasons um, why I'm skeptical um, that we'll be able to efficiently curb disinformation during the European election campaign. Um, the first one is that um, there's an incredibly fast-changing uh, communication landscape and, and landscape of information sharing. Um, we, I think we've seen in the last two or three years really a trend towards um, the distribution of information, um, but also mobilization 
and, um, and sharing on messaging services like WhatsApp and Telegram. Um, we've seen a lot of changes to the structure of platforms like Facebook, which now more favor communities um, instead of um, uh, favoring um, political information on, on your timeline, which has led to uh, an explosion of communities and closed groups where um, information um, is now flowing much, uh, much differently than it maybe used to be two or three years ago. Um, and um, I think one of the um, results of of um, this new communication patterns in um, in closed groups, or what can at least one could at least speculate about this, is um, that at least that this leads to really different um, mobilization patterns. For, that we have example, for example, seen with the gilets jaunes. Um, it leads to really different um, patterns of the distribution of um, mis disinformation. Um, a lot of anti-vaccination groups are, for example, organized in closed Facebook groups. Um, and um, it also leads to um, a much more complicated situation for researchers or people who are actually trying to put uh, scrutiny on these information flows. Um, because many closed Facebook groups, for example, are moderated. Um, it's not that easy to actually get into. Um, WhatsApp channels and other um, chat groups are usually end-to-end -end encrypted, so it's much more difficult to actually find the information there. Um, and due to this, I've, I feel that um, we will, um, it will be very, very complicated with the solution that um, the solutions that the European Commission has proposed, for example, a rapid alert uh, sharing system for fake news um, to, to actually tackle this. Because if, if most of the um, information is flowing in, in um, either closed groups or in uh, WhatsApp chats, which we are really have a lot of trouble to control, um, it will be really hard to put these uh, solutions into practice. Um, Another reason why I'm skeptical is that, but it's connected to, to the first point, is that how fast the um, innovation sort of is in terms of um, the creation and, and, and spread of, of disinformation and fake news. Um, if you look, for example, at um, how easy it has become to automate not only um, comments or likes, but now increasingly also audio and video content, um, if, um, if you look at, for example, the way that um, I think NVIDIA uh, recently uh, posted a couple of, of or, or released uh, work on, um, on artificial face uh, reconstruction where they were able to create um, completely synthetic faces which are absolutely indistinguishable from, from real faces but are of people that don't exist in reality. So we have this innovation factor. Um, and then I think a third factor that we have to take into account when looking specifically at the European elections um, is that they do have a really sort of special character and, and, and special dynamics um, that are different from national elections. Um, of course, uh, EU elections are not real sort of um, second order national elections any longer as, as they were long interpreted in political science. Um, they now have a European element. There is sort of a um, European element to to the election campaign, but still we have to, um, I think, grapple with the fact that we still we have um, 28 or soon 27 different public spheres, 25 different languages. So um, I think we have um, an environment that might, on the one hand, protect the European elections a little bit from um, um, this certain disinformation going, um, especially traveling, especially fast because of the language barriers. Um, uh, also, we have very different cultures, very different political issues that might um, become um, the target of disinformation campaigns. So, not um, 
I don't know, migration or the euro are um, policy issues that might be used much differently in, in, in different European member states. So I think we should um, take this into account. Um, and um, so this, this might speak in, 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 um, in favor of, of, um, of, of the uh, election campaign. But then again, we also, we are, we've already seen that um, there are many actually transnational online groups that are um, organizing, that are, um, for example, translating memes, are translating, um, uh, uh, are translating videos, are subtitling videos um, with, with the intent of, of, um, of distributing uh, disinformation much faster across, across the, um, um, the EU. Um, and then I think there's also the factor that we do have a lot of sort of exotic languages, for example, Basque or Maltese or Lithuanian, um, for which there might actually be much less fact checkers um, available than, than for, for more um, uh, commonly spoken languages. So these three factors, innovation, um, fast changing uh, uh, communication landscape and the special character of the European election, I think really makes it um, very hard to predict how, how this is actually going to turn out. Um, but if I may, I'll also make a small second, a little bit more general point on the discussion. Um, because I really do think that we need uh, a better debate on what uh, disinformation and election manipulation actually is. So we need a better definition of that and who is engaged in it. Because I feel like there's a, there's a tendency at the moment to declare the emergence of uh, unexpected phenomena or even unpleasant election results, um, at least implicitly, uh, with the deliberate spreading of disinformation, um, for example, Russia. Um, there's also a tendency to declare uh, uh, very vir viral opinions or um, uh, as, as fake news, or there's a tendency to, to declare uh, online support as being driven by social bots, even um, if there um, can be proven that there are no social bots involved. Um, um, and, but at the same time, as I think you also already mentioned, we don't really know precisely how effective fake news or disinformation actually is in turning elections. How effective bots actually can be, how many bots even actually exist is very hard to, um, to, uh, to elaborate. And there's, there's, there are a lot of, there's a lot of very controversial studies on that. Um, and I think it's in general, um, so this, this conflation of, of um, um, disinformation as the result of certain election results or, or uh, no, certain election results as the, res as the result of disinformation is, um, um, is, is, uh, is, is dangerous and under complex. Um, and um, however, we do have, I think, general emerging phenomena, which are related but also more complex than disinformation, like distrust in authority, hierarchies, science and expertise, or the establishment in general, but which I would claim are more symptoms of sort of current changes of the uh, um, current communication environment, and especially the disruption of the public sphere in general, um, and not necessarily the product of targeted disinformation. So um, the online public sphere and the way it's currently built rewards polarizing and emotional content, um, and wrong information is, is one, one aspect of that, I'd say. And I, I would argue that this crystallizes in the success of political actors with a populist style in the EU. Um, um, this, this, this especially um, populist actors with a populist style on social media. If you look, for example, at the Facebook profile of Matteo Salvini, who has, uh, of the, the leader of the Lega Nord, of the Lega, who has, in Italy, who has 3.4 million followers on Facebook. 
um, then it's actually interesting to see that he's posting a really wild mix of um, trashy smartphone videos, his food, um, an occasional rant against, against immigrants or Eurocrats. Um, but all of that is meant to be um, emotional and to go viral. Um, so he's essentially using the marketing platform of Facebook as it is intended to be used um, and is creating attention for his product. Um, and that is because I think that's because the architecture of platforms such as Facebook, in my opinion, um, fits sort of the um, not only the, the the populist style, which is confrontative and emotional, but also fits the populist message, um, which pits um, sort of the common people against the elites, and which claims to to speak for for um, the voice of the unintermediate voice of people. Sorry, I, I cut it here. So um, I um, I think we should. Um, be also looking at this aspects of, of the changing of the communication environment um, and, and um, not only talk about disinformation in the context of elections, but also think about why um, certain political actors can be so successful on social networks while others cannot. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Does it work? Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your opening statements. Um, I think we have more questions now than we have answers, um, which is uh, why I'm very much looking forward to more questions from the audience. Um, but let me start with this. Matthias, you said, um, we don't really know what the challenge actually is. And I think some of the that has been um, elucidated as well in, in what um, Rebecca and Paul said. But um, let, me, let me go further in than just what the challenge is. Um, and ask um, ask you what what do we actually know based on scientific results that we currently have about the effects of um, disinformation on on the political process? What can we actually say? Maybe um, Rebecca or um, Matthias would like to respond to that. Um, is this actually? It's on. Okay. Good. Um, so the answer is unfortunately we at this point we actually know very little. Um, there have been a number of uh, kind of small-scale studies, um, particularly um, laboratory-based studies, experiments that try and get a try and um, give us a picture of how disinformation might actually be processed. Um, but until we have kind of longer-term studies, ah, there we go. Until we have longer-term studies that allow us to look at the type of information that people are exposed to over time, and how that information impacts their changes in um, opinions and behavior, we can't really say too much about the specific impacts of disinformation. And we actually know very little at this point about how many people are being exposed to disinformation in the first place. There have been an, a, a handful of studies um, in the last year or so that have gotten quite a few headlines um, about this, that have gotten a lot of media attention. Um, each one of those studies has suggested that very few people, um, and this is even in the American context where we generally think actually exposure to mis- and disinformation has been broader than in most parts of Europe. Um, but still, even that statement is conjecture. 
Now, those um, studies have suggested that Americans aren't being exposed to disinformation at very high levels. But the problem with those studies is that they have focused on a pre-selected list of websites that were determined to carry misinformation or disinformation. It's, so it's been a very narrowly defined band um, of potential sources of problematic information. And when we say, okay, so here are these 92 websites that we've started with and very few people are exposed to those, that tells us something about exposure to those 92 websites alone. What we know is the information environment is so much more vast and getting a handle on who's really being exposed to what, let alone how they're then affected by that exposure we just don't have a good handle on at this point. I'm glad I'm second, um, because there's not much to add um, when we're talking about the, you know, the studies, the evidence that we have here. Uh, so I would like to take a different approach. Um, and this makes it probably even more problematic, because we can't even exactly say what we're talking about when we're talking about disinformation. And I'm not using the term fake news because, you know, we shouldn't in this debate. Uh, of course, we have to even by saying we shouldn't mm -hmm. use that term, but anyway. So, um, right now, there's a huge debate going on that is related to what we're talking about, but that's just coincidence. And that's the copyright reform on the European level, Article 11, and Article 13, talking about the Google text, I'll just call it that, and, um, and upload filters. And if you look at the debate that is going on online, basically wherever, it doesn't need to be online, it can be everywhere, it's hard to determine what is information and what is disinformation, because the affected parties, they claim about each other that you know they are uh, distributing uh, fake news and disinformation because they don't agree with the, their perspective, right? Now, of course, it's a, science is a little further um, developed than that. It's not just, you know, someone has his opinion and someone else has her opinion and you can't really say what's true or not. We, in, we do have at least, you know, some established ideas of how we determine whether something is correct, some information is correct or not, and, and then we start debating how can we define that, um, what's the intent of, um, for example, uh, distributing information that the person distributing it knows that it is incorrect, and whether that defines or um, constitutes uh, disinformation. But the problem, if you then look at, look at, try to look at it from the other side, is how will we determine what is the kind of information that we need to um, uh, subsume under these different categories and how is it spread? And, and then we come to this, the, the question that Rebecca just touched on, how does it affect people? And if you look at this entire chain of things, then um, it's unfortunately, um, rather unrealistic to expect that we can give um, really qualified answers to that. Now, um, the problem, of course, is if you make that argument, then um, sometimes you get the reaction of, yeah, but you can't really know what the effect of um, quality information is either. And my only response to that then always is, yes, exactly, but that's part of the problem, right? Because if we 
as you said, you know, you uh, take issue with some of the recommendations of the um, of the high-level uh, group, and I I um, agree with uh, with your assessment. Um, what I was referring to is that um, I think they are basically in all these suggestions or recommendations, they are based on very good ideas. Um, and we need to try or we need to follow up on that. But when we look at that closely, then, for example, you know, we don't really know what happens when we um, put more quality information out there, you know, um, or when we, uh, what it means that we say we have to train people to better distinguish between good information and bad information or wrong information and, and uh, correct information. So, it's a it's a different take, but basically with the same result. Um, if we had to develop policy recommendations on the basis of what we know, um, we probably wouldn't come up with a lot of things right now. Did you want to add anything? Um. Yeah, I think um, I, I agree with what both both of you said. And I think also part of the problem is that, um, and this is also something you touch upon, is that um, a, a lot of people don't, um, um, a lot of people, I think, look for information um, in order to um, validate their their identity, or in order to to um, to to validate what, um, or to 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 strengthen sort of the. Uh, Strengthen the, the, the that's what's what what they deem to be important in um, um, in in their lives and not necessarily to um, in order to to seek information as uh, um, as as we sometimes do in in a, in a political debate. So um, I think this is part of the problem why it's so hard to um, to that's I think why fact checking is such a runs into a lot of problems and why um, it it can um, it. It's simply very. It's, it's very problematic to to uh, find uh, a better solution. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, again, we have more questions than we had have answers, which I think is kind of uh, symptomatic of the of the the topic that we're talking about here. Um, but before before we go and, and talk about possible defense defense mechanisms and ways in which we can we can uh, counter counter this challenge that we're talking about, um, let me ask you a bit about we've talked about the targets of of disinformation and you've mentioned a couple of those and how those studies are complicated. But we haven't talk, really talked about the the senders of disinformation. And um, I found this uh, interesting quote by the German Marshall Fund that says, or that claims that in the last 15 years, Russia has been accused of interfering in democratic processes in 27 different countries. And so we hear a lot about disinformation campaigns being run from Russia. But I think one of the things you touched upon in your um, in your comments, uh, Paul, was the fact that a lot of things are now labeled disinformation that are coming from um, sources within the respective member, member states and also aren't necessarily um, what we would conventionally classify as disinformation. And so my question is, how much do we have to worry about different types of targets and how do we get our heads around dealing with different types of targets that may not actually be foreign interveners, uh, if I may say it that way? I'll try. Um, we, we may have to just um, overcome this categorization. Um, of course, it's important for a nation state to understand 
if, for example, another nation state is trying to meddle with their politics. Um, but in my opinion, that has happened all the time in the past as well. And the term propaganda comes from this, you know, because that was not just targeted at own populations, but also at foreign populations from the perspective of the nation state employing those uh, techniques and, and tools. Um, so that, of course, doesn't say that it's not a problem. But um, the question, of course, in many cases is how does it affect the situation in the country that may be targeted and why is there a fertile ground for something like that if there is a fertile ground for that. We have in Germany the situation that we have a channel like RT Deutsch um, and they do a lot of reporting that you can take issue with. Um, but again, we are in the circle of having to understand that yes, this information is out there. I'd argue that it was out there before and Voice of America has not shied away always from, you know, using uh, information that was probably not what we would call quality information in the past and, and so have others. So why is it then that people are um, reacting in a positive way, positive in the sense of, you know, why do they think that this is information that, that uh, they need in contrast to the information that is supplied by other um, sources of information, let's say the mainstream media, the public broadcasting stations, and so on and so forth. So I wouldn't discount the fact at all that uh, there is, for example, um, this interest, and that is also that, that uh, there are concerted efforts of uh, specific nations, but I would not... Um, understand this as a as the threat that it is already made to be, um, because there are lots of other uh, examples, and the yellow vests were already uh, mentioned, where information like that um, uh, is created, and it results in a situation that you know, as a politician or as society in general, you have to react to. Um, so I, I, would, I would probably try to not use that categorization in the first place, because it, I, I don't think it's helpful. Yeah, very quickly adding on that, um, and, and to strengthen one of the points, Matthias, that you made in your opening statement, um, I think this is one of the key reasons why we it's really essential one of my concrete recommendations is actually that we back away from this language of war on, right? War on disinformation, war on anything. Um, you know, the platforms referring to their war rooms and command and control centers, policymakers talking about the wars on disinformation. We need to back off of that because while I think it's problematic even when we talk about this in terms of foreign state actors, um, because we've adopted that language, the fact that um, the, the issues of, of mis- and disinformation aren't just coming exclusively and maybe even are... Um, uh, the, my, you know, the smaller portion of the problem is actually coming from outside of a given state, from foreign actors. It means that we've now so highly politicized each and every element of this entire discourse. I mean, one of the reasons we're all backing off of the term fake news is because it's become so highly politicized, right? And because we have research that shows us that when we use these terms on platforms like these, it makes members of the public even more skeptical about the broader 
um, journalistic and media environment. Everything becomes fake news for them, right? When we know that's not the case. Because that type of language was adopted, it's politicized everything. When we talk about the war on disinformation, it not only politicizes, but it takes it up to this extreme level that makes it very difficult for people like us to come in and kind of complexify the issue and say, hang on, back up. Let's take a breath, right, to try and understand this more deeply before we take this kind of, I mean, truly attack position and then wind up attacking not just foreign actors, but political parties and political actors within our own systems. As someone who researches uh, armed conflict, I can only support this um this position, I think, I think we're we're using the the term war in many different spheres where we're not really actually talking about what what we mean by war. But let me before we open up for the the public, let me push you a little bit because we've had a lot of um, you know complexifying, and I think that's very important, and maybe that is actually the main implication for us moving forward. But let me push you a little bit on what you think concrete steps could be that that um, the EU can take moving forward, that countries can take moving forward, that informed or uh, less informed citizens can can take moving forward, um, either with respect to the upcoming um, elections or moving forward um, towards other elections. So maybe just briefly, I'd like to push you on, um, on this. Um, I, I think what we should really be thinking more about in the short term is um, introducing um, better re regulation to, to distribute political ads and political information during election campaigns and also um, enforcing um, much better, for example, uh, enforcing uh, data violations um, and, and, and data breaches that are, have, as we now have been committed a lot in the past by um, um, certain groups, for example, the Leaf campaign, um, enforce much stronger regulation against uh, such, such breaches if they occur. Um, and I think in the long term, we have to think about uh, um, Frankly, I think we have to talk about uh, um, the way that the current platform um, environment is structured and what kind of information sharing it incentivizes, and 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 we've, we should think about if if there is a way to to change it in, in dialogue or with the platforms or via regulation. So um, while I'm skeptical. Um, and I always speak for my skepticism, and I'm skeptical specifically about the, the five points from the high-level expert group. I actually think it's appropriate for us to take this kind of multi-pronged approach in this moment and continue forward with it. Um, but understanding that, in a sense, that fifth point, right, the one that's been put at the very bottom of the list but is about fundamental research and fundamental understanding, actually should be first and foremost. That as we continue to pursue, right, one through four, that it needs to be with an undergirding, with a real commitment to making sure that each one of those is properly informed, right, by the basic research, lots of support for that research to help us understand what the problem is in the first place, whether it's a problem, and the extent to the problem. Um, that's a very, very good segue because um, I, I agree with that, but I also understand the frustration when someone says something like that, you know, but there is this problem and we need to tackle it. And so my first statement is that I'd say we don't really have a disinformation problem in Germany, you know, and challenge me on that. Let's find out 
you know, give me some evidence about the real problem that we're facing that people in troves go to vote for AFD because there is some meddling either by state actors or by other groups inside Germany and they are driving this. And this is not what we would consider a, um, an election campaign, even sometimes with dirty tricks, right? But there's, there have always been dirty tricks in election campaigns, right? So we do not have a disinformation problem in Germany. So maybe that takes, lets some air out of that balloon of, you know, we need that, uh, that, that solution to it. I still say that we should think very hard about how to extract information from the platforms, you know, if they don't give it to us voluntarily, how to extract information from the platforms to find out more about the dynamics, what is going on. Because, um, and I, that's, that's kind of a question, because um, um, maybe you know more about that than, than, than I do, and I would be really interested in the answer. To me, it's a fact that the model the engagement model that, for example, Facebook uses has been partly responsible for a lot of distribution of what we call disinformation on their platform, and they have tried to change that. Change that. Have they made good enough attempts? You know, we need to know more about that. And we've, you know, as Algorithm Watch, we try to do external auditing of certain things, and we were we could do that with Google. I wouldn't say we were successful. I just say there are ways to do that with Facebook. There are basically no ways to do that. I'm, I'm not going to go into detail. Um, we can probably discuss this when you are. In interested in that, uh, but it's not possible. So we need to find ways to get that information from them if they don't give it to us voluntarily. And then this ties very well into this question of doing more research and trying to find out more about what is, what is going on there. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to now open it up for questions um, from the audience. Um, when you ask a question, please identify yourself and please also identify who the question is directed at. Uh, my name is Gemma Pelzken. I'm a German journalist and I'm also a colleague of Matthias on the board of Reporters Without Borders. And uh, I have a question to, to research because uh, I, I would be interested, um, I mean, how can you really assure that you have independent research? Because you quoted, for example, a study of the Marshall Fund, which is from my point of view not independent research, uh, and it's the same for the Atlantic Council. It's all it's uh, lobby groups from the United States who have a big interest uh, to over uh, how you say to uh, overestimate um, the influence of Russian propaganda, especially in Germany. I've been to several conferences where you see there is a direct interest in uh, really blowing up this problem. Um, and I would be very much interested um, in, in your opinion how you can really assure that there's not uh, this kind of PR and lobbying group involved in research on these topics. So I don't think that you can guarantee right, that that's ever the case. Um, but of course, now I say this totally recognizing that everyone in the room will see this as utterly self-interested because I am an academic. But I think academic research right, is the um, best uh, solution to that problem. It's not that 
all academic research is without its problems. Um, but if we really want independent perspectives on this, um, there has to be support for academic research coming from right a number of different avenues. Um, and I think one of the, the best um, models is one that actually takes um, funding from a variety of different organizations that are seen as lobby groups coming from across right, a, a diverse political spectrum um, that allows then the academics um, to, you know, get money from fairly big funding sources, but such a diversity um, that, you know, it would be hard to say that anyone um, is actually, you know, their interests uh, are, are actually weighing out. This is the model um, that the um, Social Science One Commission is now using. Um, I'm a member of that commission, and it's a group of um, independent academic scholars who are working with Facebook to try and get more and better data um, and make that available for researchers to really interrogate more deeply. Let me tell you, it is an incredibly slow process because of all of the legal implications. And this is where, Matthias, when you were talking about the issue of um, uh, the need for more data from the companies, I could not agree more. But we can't um, forget the fact that getting more data has very severe privacy implications. Um, and so, and you know, particularly in the age of GDPR, which I think is incredibly important, right? I'm I'm a data privacy advocate um, through and through, um, but more data brings more problems. <laughs> um, and so, these are all really thorny issues that we have to deal with as we're trying to understand and do the fundamental research that I'm calling for to help us understand a problem this tricky. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Anna Saraste. I'm a freelance journalist from Finland. And I would have a question probably to all three of you, or I have two questions, actually. Uh, the first one would be, how do you see the role of debunking disinformation? Because this was not mentioned as one of the measures of the commission. and But this is kind of one of the most visible responses so far. So you have Corrective here in Germany or other... Um, uh, debunking websites. There is also the initiative by the EU called EU versus Disinfo, which claims to do this as well, has maybe a bit of a different methodology. So how would you see the role of this as a measure against uh, yeah, disinformation? And the second would be, as, as I think what concerns policymakers most at the moment are orchestrated disinformation campaigns prior to the election. So how big would you estimate the probability of orchestrated, like bigger disinformation campaigns? Thank you. Okay, I, I take the second question. And, you know, we talked about this situation that someone says, I'd like to hear answers from all three, and I have two questions, so we, you get six answers, and then no one has any chance to ask the next question anymore. So I just take the second question and then um, um, hand over the, the uh, mic. Well, not really, but anyway. Um, so... Um, the orchestrated uh, disinformation campaigns. Um, 
Yeah, I think there'll be orchestrated disinformation campaigns. There'll be orchestrated disinformation campaigns by the CDU, the SPD, the FDP, the AFD, and the Green Party in Germany. You know, that's, I, there's a very high probability that that will happen uh, because they will um, use information that others don't agree with and will call misinformation, right? I, I know I'm again doing this um, myself, um, you know, being very unscientific because this is not the same as you know, uh, disinformation when we try to uh, frame it a little more closely. Um, when you're talking about um, the disinformation campaigns that are talked about in the public um, very much, uh, you know, are there foreign state actors or anything? Um, as I said, I think this exists. It happens. Um, I, I don't really doubt that, you know, but I still say... Um, it doesn't have the importance that um, it's made up to have in, in the discussion that we have right now. You know, Russia is not going to influence the uh, European election in Germany in a way that uh, needs to concern us. I still say we need to look at this. We need to try to find out more about what is going on. Um, but I'm not, really, um, I'm not really worried. On the debunking? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I think there also, um, I generally generally be a little bit skeptical about debunking or, or fact-checking um, because also there, I mean, um, there were studies out showing that um, after a story has been debunked or if, if, if people who had believed in fake news had, had been showing the debunking afterwards or the fact-checking, they would um, believe in the original fake news story even more because, again, I think this is something... Um, Believing or not believing in fake news stories is something that is very maybe closely related to um, to, to your identity or to to you, your way you look at the world and and often much less interpreted. I mean, to to a certain extent. So I'm going to contradict just slightly yeah. here because actually this is one of the few areas where we're making quite a bit of progress in the kind of fundamental research. Um, and earlier studies were indeed showing um, that fact-checking and debunking could have things like what we call the actual backfire effect, um, where if it, something were debunked that you... So you believed in the original claim, it was debunked, then you would more strongly believe in the original claim. Um, but there's... A, a number of studies that have come out recently that have sort of advanced on that and suggested that there are specific ways that the debunking can be presented that can be very effective. Um, and I don't kind of have at my fingertips, right, the, all of the nuances to share with you to talk about that, but um, I actually think that fact-checking and debunking is probably one of the core tools that we have at our disposal right now that, is, that can be truly effective if approached um, in the appropriate way. So I would say more debunking, but let's make sure that it's, again, grounded in what we know about the right way to present fact-checking and debunking to make it work. Yeah, at the back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Elsa, and I'm a consultant here in European Affairs in Berlin. And I had one question. I know we've been talking a lot about the, the lack of research, but I was wondering, is there research on whether we have, like, on the effect that this debate precisely has on people, like whether people are checking their information, whether they're questioning the source, uh, where they get their information, and that, that kind of effect on... Everybody, let's say, because I know 
I speak for myself, but I know I'm checking more carefully where I get my information from um, since this debate is on, and I probably didn't ask myself that question before. So I'm wondering if we have data on this kind of behaviors, or if it's just something that hasn't been researched on. Thanks. I haven't seen any data specifically on, um, broadly speaking, whether people are checking their sources more or not. Um, that absolutely should be gathered. We should look into that further. Um, what I have seen, though, are a couple of very recent studies um, that suggest that the main impact of this debate has been simply to make members of the public profoundly skeptical of their information environments, as in believing that everything is fake news, right? So not necessarily actively seeking other bits of information, but being much more keyed up for the moment where, okay, I don't, this doesn't comport with what I believed, right, before I got this information, therefore this is fake news, right? I'm cynical about it, this is just, I can toss it aside. Um, so I th this is one of the reasons why I think the highly charged, highly politicized nature of the debate in and of itself needs to be brought back, simply because it, in a sense, makes, it, it can become basically a self-fulfilling prophecy if we're not careful here, right? If we make everyone so deeply cynical about everything that they're encountering in their information environment, it becomes that much more difficult to correct Miss and disinformation when people do come across it. Hello, I'm Bruno. I'm a student here at Hertz School. Um, first question is: uh, There is a self-regulatory experience at the EU level, the EU Code of Practice on disinformation that was published in September. I'd do like to hear your thoughts on that. And also uh, for Rebecca, as you are a member of the board of the Social Science One, I would like to understand why is it taking so long and uh, why uh, isn't it, it possible to grant access to data if you anonymize the data? The second question is fairly easy, so I'll just do that quickly and then turn it over. Um, so that was sort of a two-pronged second question. Why is it taking so long? The lawyers, right? That's the primary answer. And, uh, in a way, it's the lawyers for the right reasons, right? There's deep concern about privacy issues here, of course. Facebook, from a corporate perspective, is also trying to be very, very careful here. And, you know, members of the commission would like things to move a little bit more um, quickly, but we have to get around, uh, have to deal with these legal issues. Um, why can't data just be shared if it's anonymized? The answer to that is slightly more complicated, but the essence of it is that when we're talking about data at the volumes that we're discussing here, so for Social Science One, the very first data set that we want to put out is a terabyte in size. We're talking about true big data here, but even much smaller big data, data at this scale is never anonymous never anonymous. You can actually de-anonymize this data incredibly easily. And so there are all sorts of techniques that are being used and in the Social Science One Commission we actually have experts um, who work on things like differential privacy which is all about putting noise into the data in order to increase anonymity. But even differential privacy is problematic. So it is all incredibly complicated when you're dealing with data at this volume. Does any of you want to take on the first 
Yeah, I have to be, be a little careful here to not uh, mix things up, um, and I, I need to ask first. Uh, this is about the self-regulatory attempt to ask uh, the ask the platforms to uh, remove um, um, disinformation from the from the platforms. Is that what you're asking about? After the high-level expert group, the EU Commission yeah. put pressure on the platforms to yes. sit on the table and establish a EU code of practice on disinformation. And it's about uh, removing fake accounts, uh, also reducing the reach of disinformation, and allowing academics to get access to data. I would like to think if you think self-regulation might be uh, a path to solve it. Well, we, we have that uh, very intense discussion. We had that very in intense discussion in Germany here that is very related to that, about that network enforcement law or the Facebook law or, you know, different, the Netzwerkdurchsetzungsgesetz in German. And I think there is, you know, um, we, we compared that to this discussion on the EU level because, first of all, you know, when the EU Commission asks someone to voluntarily not do anything anymore or do something else, you know, um, you can debate about how voluntary then it is what they're doing afterwards, because of course they have the power to uh, suggest a new regulation. Um, and, um, you know, when that happens in other places in the world, it has been highly criticized, and I think for good reasons, you know. Um, we know that in Israel, for example, um, um, the government has put pressure on Facebook to remove certain Palestinian um, uh, pieces of content, um, threatening them with doing regulation if they don't comply. Now, again, we need to ask how voluntary is um, compliance then in a situation like that. So from that perspective, I'm not happy with that at all. Um, and then I have to admit that I don't really know a lot about how they implemented that and you know uh, and and uh, how the, the the process worked and whether it was successful in a sense that um, there's less disinformation on or misinformation on the platforms now than there was before it, and that brings me back to the question of how do we find out you know what's the what's the information that the platforms give us but i haven't researched on that so this is all i can i can add here or contribute Maybe to quickly add just one thing, I think <clears throat> part of the reasoning for the EU Commission to um, um, continue with self-regulatory measures in, in this environment, in this case, is also that um, um, the, the Commission is or was afraid that um, certain governments in Europe, for example, in Eastern Europe, might actually abuse any tools that that they would get as, as a result of proper regulation, might it as tools for, 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 for censorship, for example, in... In, in Hungary or Poland. That's at least what, what I um, was told was one, one of the um, part of the reasoning why um, self for self-regulatory measures. Yes. Thank you. My name is Christopher Hodges, and I'm professor of justice systems at the University of Oxford. This isn't my field, and I'm only here by accident, but I'm very um, <laughs> happy to hear the uh, discussion. Um, the area of regulation, however, is something I know a little about, and um, there are a number of interesting discussions going on about uh, how one regulates, because if one thinks about how states respond to problems like this, the traditional methods of the criminal law or regulation, especially of intermediaries, um, 
the conundrum is if you leave it to self-regulation alone, it might not work. There's another conundrum which has just been mentioned, if you leave it to some enforcers, <laughs> there are concerns that arise. Um, but two ideas spring to mind. One um, it follows the idea of people like Colin Mayer, who's just written a book on this in relation to the regulation of corporations, saying maybe we should, or the logic of where his thought goes, is that maybe we should intervene more with corporations. And he says you need to, a corporation needs to have a very clear social purpose. And if it's got no selfish, sorry, if it's got a selfish purpose, in other words, Milton Friedman's maximising shareholder value, things are going to go wrong. So the logic of that would be to positively interfere with uh, the organisation of corporations and what they're supposed to do. In other words, if most of your revenue comes from advertising, things are going to go wrong. How wrong do they have to go before you interfere? Should you actually intervene with business models is the logic of that strain of thought. I'd be interested to know what you hear about that. The other line of thought is to say, well, let's look at a different form of self-regulation, bearing in mind that here we're dealing with global issues. We don't have global government. We don't therefore have global enforcers. We have nation state enforcers that cannot control this. Um, and especially, or quite a number of aspects of this, and especially in a, in a global approach. So is there something else which um, can uh, modulate the behaviour of the people we're trying to regulate? And uh, forgive me for mentioning this, but this is an idea that, that is in one of my books called Ethical Business Practice and Regulation, saying if you can have a system within which a company can demonstrate that it actually can be trusted... It doesn't have to be a company, it could be anyone, it could be a regulator, it could be a state. If you can demonstrate consistently that you can be trusted, then the chances of effective self-regulation increase. So we're looking at a number of models of that, but I'd be interested to know any reactions from that. The governance of platforms is, of course, one of the major challenges that we're facing right now because we have the problem of jurisdiction that you mentioned. You know, they are active on a global scale. Um, and, uh, for example, the network enforcement law is an attempt to, um, to um, obligate some of them uh, when they are active in the German market to also um, adhere to German law. Now, that sounds very reasonable, right? From the perspective that we don't have a world government and we have cultural differences in, in all these countries. And um, this is not a bug, it's a feature, you know? We are very happy about that um, nations are different and uh, people are different and cultures are different. But um, Facebook, for example, is facing that enormous challenge and I already said in my opening statement that at some points you know I'm very critical of Facebook and their the way they are conducting their business at the same time when people are um, demanding from them to change that um, but not offering one 
single meaningful idea how they could do that, how Facebook could do that, I become a little, uh, you know, either frustrated or skeptical about um, how we can have that discussion in, in a good way. And Facebook proposed um, a government's model a couple of months ago in, in November. And I looked at that closely because I find that very, very interesting. And they suggested, for example, to have a uh, external governance board that then in the end would look at f um, disputed content. You know, of course, it needs to escalate. They can't do everything. There are millions and millions of posts every day that they would have to tend to. But you have that idea that it escalates and if something is really problematic. But now if you, if you imagine that uh, you have these cultural differences, then in my opinion, we, have, we now know better that we don't really have a valid answer to the question that we are asking Facebook. Because if they abide by all the different um, um, laws in the countries where they are active, they will not be able to publish any content at all anymore. I mean, they don't say they publish content. They, you know, put content online that is, um, that is created by their users. Um, if we don't ask them to do anything, we stick to the situation or we remain in the situation that we have right now. So when I hear the word ethics, um, then um, I, at the, on the one hand, say, well, yeah, ethics is you know, the new blockchain in the sense that it's used for everything and everyone says, oh, we have an ethics committee here and an ethics committee there. I believe in ethics myself in... I suppose in a very different, in a, in a very similar to, uh, way to, to what you suggested, although I heard about that for the first time. If you look at the situation right now, the unethical behavior that Facebook showed in the last year is a very important part in their value dropping by a third. You know, it's, it's also, of course it's the threat of um, legal regulation, but where does that threat of legal regulation come from? Because people are fed up with the behavior of Facebook. Now, does this mean that, that we have to leave all of this to the market because the market then decides because, you know, people are uh, unhappy with that? Well, they still are on Facebook. They don't leave the platform. But at the same time, they voice their concern with, you know, how the company is conducting business. And that means something that has an effect. Uh, of course, you know, whether that is a causal effect or not <laughs> remains uh, to, be, to be shown. Um, but uh, I, I think there's a good reason to believe that. So um, I, I think we, ha we have a combination of that. But the governance question is something is, is unresolved. And I have basically no resolution to that. Myself, so I'm I'm happy to hear any uh, ideas on you know how to go forward with that because YouTube and Twitter um, face the same questions. Do we have other questions? Yes, up front here. Hi, my name is Philip, um, Hurdy student. Um, so uh, in the opening speeches, uh, public spheres were mentioned. So Jürgen Habermas. Um, but there was no discussion about the actual structure of the very of the internet itself. I mean, there was, of course, the one comment that it's not good, it's not bad, nor is it neutral, and that sort of fits into it because everything flows within the own structure of the internet itself. But um, I guess my question is why why can't uh, I mean why haven't there any uh, why haven't any solutions been found out around? around the structure itself. I mean, if you look at Facebook, for example, the very creation of the algorithms that they created 
to create the most comfortable experience for all its users created their own multiple structures around themselves, their own public spheres, if you will, uh, despite Jurgen Habermas obviously disagreeing with that terminology in that case. But you'd end up with uh, multiple communities that then are totally dis uh, disintegrated from one another. And as a result, they only get the exact same message over and over and over again. And, then, and uh, as a result, you just end up with one community and another community and another community. And as a result, there's no more serendipity in the entire, in the entire structure. And I, at least from Jürgen Habermas' perspective, the very structure of it actually is what leads to more and more disinformation in this case. But uh, I mean, what would the comments be on that? Thank you. So you've just walked directly into my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, I study online political discourse. Um, as Anita mentioned in the beginning, um, I am uh, leading a research team that's being uh, that was selected by Twitter to um, analyze the quote unquote health of conversations on the platform. Um, and some of what you were just talking about um, touched on the twin ideas of filter bubbles and echo chambers, right? Filter bubbles being the notion that the algorithms um, that the various platforms are implementing are pushing us into, right, these ideological um, bubbles into uh, homogeneous, right, spaces online. Um, there's a lot of really good recent research that actually tells us filter bubbles aren't the problem so much. Um, maybe 10 years ago, this was more of a problem and we did start talking about filter bubbles then and you know, there's a good chance that some of the underlying algorithms have been changed to mitigate some of those issues. But at this point, what we can speak of is more likely an echo chamber than a filter bubble. And an echo chamber is created by user choice. Um, and one of the things that the, the research on this is suggesting to us is that actually, in these online spaces, people are getting more opportunities for, you use the term serendipity, exactly that. We encounter more ideologically um, heterogeneous ideas on Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatnot, than we actually would in our own offline social worlds. Why? For two reasons. One, because we select to have people around us in our networks who are very much like us. And in the offline world, when we have those who we suspect we disagree with, we simply don't talk with them about the things we disagree about, right? In the online world, you can serendipitously, right, um, encounter that sort of information. Now, it doesn't mean that you engage with it on a deep level, and we need to understand that better, but the filter bubbles that we've been so worried about actually aren't as prominent as the fear has long suggested. Do we have any final questions? If not, then I'd really like to thank my, uh, the panel, at, uh, Matthias, Rebecca, Paul, thank you very much for your contributions. Thank you very much for your excellent questions uh, and have a good night. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herity-school.org.